At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as, well, frequently now, these days, by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, I'm doing all right. Glad to be here more frequently these days. Me too. This is episode 177. This is the Blood Pressure Podcast. Uh, Unclear if this is going to be a one or two part series, but you'll find out, you know, by the end of this thing, whether or not it spills over into a second separate podcast. There's a lot of stuff to discuss, but, you know, before you your eyes glaze over and you, you know, turn on another podcast, true crime or whatever you're into, this is not just a podcast about what is blood pressure and why do we care? Oh, no, we're going deeper. For example, is a blood pressure of 480 over 350 bad if it happens during exercise? And if it's not bad, why? So you can finally explain to your friends why, you know, when your eyeballs are popping out of a deadlift, you know, maybe that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. Uh, also, we're going to talk, talk about what's better, blood pressure medications or exercise. And, you know, it's not as simple as that, but there's some interesting nuggets of information in here. And I think I think you guys are going to like what we what we did here. There's a pretty uh, extensive discussion, hopefully understandable, hopefully accessible. But before we get into that, some things have happened. We've had some developments in the in recent weeks. First off, Austin, you, you benched you benched the planet. I, that's the only <laughs> I. I mean, it's a hell of a PR, three years in the making. T- take us through what happened and, and what you did. Uh, so, yeah, anybody who's followed my training for any period of time knows that I've had uh, probably one of my uh, uh, sore spots has been my elbows on and off over the years. I've had kind of an elbow tendinopathy that's um, relapsed and, and remitted over time. And uh, I wouldn't say that I've historically been a bad bencher, but there was a time where I did kind of a casual local meet and failed a 280-pound bench and in a competition. So, um, it's been, it's been, it's been a long, a long road since then. Um, my last bench PR, yeah, was a, was a couple of years ago, I think maybe 2019 or something like that. And bench 430 had some similar ups and downs and, uh, both bench specific and in general training since then. But, uh, more recently in the past year or so I've hit on a training setup that really seems to work well for me. I really embraced the, the ups and downs and, and didn't try to force things. And then lo and behold, I finished my last two weeks of work in the hospital. And then my first day on break, I went and I was like, my God, everything is feeling very light. And when 415 felt like a right weight that I could do for, I don't know, maybe a set of four or something like that. I said, well, it's been three years, so I'm going to go ahead and snag this PR. So I went, basically I took multiple jumps to get as many, uh, pounds on the bar as I could and ended up hitting 455, which was a pretty big, big PR for me. Uh, I mean, I don't think that, uh, was that, uh, 25 pound bench PRs are not common <laughs> at this, you know, with, uh, at this level of training advancement, I suppose. So I was very happy with that. And, um, it has kind of, as with most of these kind of milestones, so to speak, helps to reframe in your mind what you thought was possible. I mean, I thought that 440 or 200 kilos was going to be like a lifetime goal. And now I'm like, well, that, seems like more is going to be possible. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, very impressive. 
See what I did there? Mm, yeah. Do you see? <laughs> yep. I'll let the uh, the audience uh, roll their eyes for you. Uh, no, that was pretty. Yeah, that was obviously very, very big. And uh, well, now it seems like 500 is possible. You know, <laughs> that just that's just what it seems like. I mean, it, well, because you've you've now crossed that median. You know, it's you're above 450. So right, right. Maybe the for, next. Maybe I have to say. Maybe I have to say 220 kilos is now the next round round jump to 484, and then kind of go from there. Yeah, I know. It's like you got to switch back from pounds to kilos. Exactly. That dude <laughs> opened up with, when he opened up with a 220 kilo bench. I was like, dear God, <laughs> I've never even strong. I've never even felt that. Yeah. You know, I was I was texting with Leah the other day. She had slingshot bench. She she benched 225 in a slingshot for some reps, mm-hmm. which uh, pretty good for for her. Um, I've actually never slingshotted more than my one RM bench press. Like, yeah, me neither. I just, don't actually really use the slingshot myself anymore, but. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell if it's because my slingshot is from 2014 and now no longer <laughs> provides like any elastic energy. It's just like yeah. you wear it and you're like, well, this is supposed to do something. But uh, yeah. yeah, I've never actually overloaded with the slingshot. Doesn't mean I think it's a bad exercise. I don't think it's particularly good either. It's just an exercise yeah. that can be used and useful for folks. But anyway, yeah. So pretty, pretty big training PR. You also published a paper. Uh, was it the American Lifestyle Medicine Journal? Yes, correct. Yeah, so uh, last year, um, the brothers Nadolsky, who probably our listeners are familiar with, um, approached me about collaborating on a paper that was not like a primary research data collection analysis uh, kind of thing, but more so based on our knowledge and experience working with with people and our experience in the training world. Uh, if somebody were to set up a like hybrid gym clinic facility, particularly for patients with diabetes and, and obviously, uh, a fair proportion of, of that patient population also has, uh, obesity that they're dealing with. How would you set up a gym clinic kind of hybrid model in a way that best kind of, uh, excuse me, that, that best tailors to that patient population. And so we just kind of took it through the entire spectrum of like considerations from like the moment this person walks in the door all the way through their clinic visit their you know say their exercise session everything that would need to be considered in terms of the setup the staffing the equipment all that kind of stuff um, for a model like that so you know it was an interesting exercise in working through this and and spencer actually has some experience in actually setting something like this up and running it for a period of time and uh, i suspect that some of these things are going to be you know popping up in the future there was some interesting pushback, you know, somebody, you know, replied to us saying something to the effect of like, you know, this is really impractical, the resources, the demands, things like that. And and to an extent, like I see, I, I understand what they're saying, that this is something that, you know, there are business and financial considerations in our current American healthcare system that can be barriers or challenges to setting something like this up. But at the same time, I mean, my response to that person was like, I wonder how they feel about cardiac rehab clinics or pulmonary rehab clinics that are effectively set up similarly to facilitate exercise for a particular patient population with comorbidities or, or medical conditions or complications that can directly benefit from exercise. And we know that those services are really beneficial, really cost-effective, and really underutilized. And so I view this as a similar kind of thing where something like this for this patient population with obesity, diabetes could stand to benefit from this. Uh, um, and I view it similarly to the lens of like cardiac or pulmonary rehab for patients who've had, you know, those kind of disease issues. Yeah. I mean, resource allocation was always going to be an issue in medicine and, yeah. you know, who gets access, who doesn't. And, you know, it's not great. 
when you when you start thinking about you know the people who need this most you know a, a good chunk of them are, are not going to have access um but yeah speaking you know you mentioned the cardiac rehab stuff um also you know r- really any i would call it uh preventative sort of resource you know may not be available for folks like you can't get a a a, rec, uh, a referral to a registered dietitian like approved by insurance unless somebody's got diabetes already if they're like on that road that's like man eh, insurance might not cover probably won't pay for it just like they won't pay for weight loss medications unless you have you know actual type 2 diabetes um it doesn't mean that the model couldn't work and actually it's funny this is actually how spencer and i met uh in 2012 Back when he was in Norfolk working and I had just gotten there for medical school, I got a, I had a little interview on Medscape about this jib uh, medicine clinic. And, and my experience was coming from a gym and how that made that, you know, profitable and how you would tie that in with medicine. Um, it, yeah, I, I, yeah, you're going to need resources, but there's got, there's going to have to be a whole paradigm shift towards uh, not just management, like identification and management of, of disease that currently exists, but also like preventing and reducing risk of uh, uh, comorbidities and, and and things of that nature, and an allocation of resources to to do that. And and perhaps it perhaps you know it needs to get established and serve more as a proof of concept and maybe a higher resource resourced population. And then yep. you know if people observe and and get quality data on you know oh ultimately this maybe down reduces downstream costs and things like that. Then maybe some other people might be interested in setting something up. So sometimes that's the way this stuff has to go. I have no doubts that a gym clinic hybrid would make buku bucks in a research resource rich environment, particularly if you're doing like a direct access kind of kind of setup or some sort of hybrid model where it's, you know, covered by insurance for some things and and, and not for others. Because, look, if a gym can make (laughs) make make a profit, you know, you you tack on third party payers for uh, auxiliary services in a primary care clinic. I mean, well, that's that's going to work, too. I mean, we already have primary care clinics that do this. And so and the gym is profitable on top of that, like you put them together. And ideally, you would show that long term, you're spending less money to, you know, on a, uh, uh, for per patient, you're preventing disease or reducing the sort of, you know, uh, uh, comorbidities that would occur basically because you couldn't do anything within your clinic. And, and, and inter- you know, some people are like, well, why don't you just why don't we just have doctors refer to a gym or refer to a coach or trainer or whatever. And it's like, well, that's one thing. We're definitely not doing that enough right now, like in our current system, but the, the physical separation of gym and clinic, like you can't just go down the hall, you know, that, that, that right there is a limitation and not just for gym services. That's even for like, yeah, you actually need this vaccination. You need this medication. You need this, any sort of intervention that requires you to like leave the office, make another appointment, go somewhere. There's, you know, you're going to lose people. And so you'd want every, to all wrap uh, together. Uh, every, every increment of effort leads to people <laughs> doing less, falling off. And that's just a human thing. That's not, you know, because they're bad people. It's just the way we all No, work. no. <laughs> that's how it is. Uh, last sort of bit of life update. I did have a powerlifting meet to the extent that people want to know about that. Uh, I, it, it came and went. It, it was fun. Uh, I was in at uh, South Bay Strength Conditioning, just uh, south of Los Angeles. Um, yeah, it was probably one of the most fun meets that I've ever had, mainly because I had really no hard expectations of like, this is going to be a lifetime best. I didn't put any pressure on myself. And then also like a bunch of homies showed up. I mean, <laughs> like John Hack was there. Um, huge Asian guy was there. 
it, it was <laughs> I just call people by their Instagram, by their Instagram name. Oh, Andy. Andy is his name. But I just, you know, we spend so much time on Instagram these days. And uh, Claire came down and helped me out. It was it was fun, man. I, I had a I had a great time and there was a bunch of uh, barbell medicine fans there. Like these, I saw a guy in a uh, uh, St. Louis U School of Medicine sweater and I was like, this seems suspicious. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, man, big fan of barbell medicine. So excited to, uh, to, to see you compete. I'm like, oh, boy, well, yeah, <laughs> lower your expectations. <laughs> well, but, it seems um, like a low expectation powerlifting competition might be the way to go then. I mean, yeah, I, I think there's a time and a place for like, <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, if, it, yeah, if, if, you, if you're someone who wants to go to nationals or an international level competition, then by, you know, yeah, the stakes are going to be higher. But for me, it's more about, I like competing in strength sports and when I compete, I prefer to have fun and, uh, yeah, this was fun. So I think the, my only regret, I have only one regret. I, I, in the warmup room, the deadlift bar that we were using was like a very, very sharp Texas power bar. And I, even from like my second warm up, which is 120 kilos, 264 pounds, I was very afraid that my hands were going to rip and they had ripped once in training. Um, I, the deadlift bar is just smaller. It's 27 millimeters. My hands, I mean, they're not huge. They're not like lobster claw kind of things, but like it's just a small bar compared to the 29 millimeter power bar that I would prefer to pull on. Anyway, I was really afraid that they were going to rip. I opened up at 300 kilos, 661. My hand still felt like I could see the calluses starting to peak. I'm like, damn it. I feel very strong. I just don't know like if my my plan jump was to go to 700 and then do a third pull at even higher than that. Um, but I was like, if my hands rip on the second one, I'm only going to be good for another pull. So anyway, I went to 727, pulled that. Probably had more in the tank afterwards had I had not pulled that, if that makes sense. Sure. Meaning like if I would have pulled 700, I probably could have pulled... 733 or 735 or something, but I was kind of, I was kind of gassed out and yeah, I was just afraid of my hands. So that was my only regret, but otherwise eight for nine, keep the streak alive. I'm never going nine for nine. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to stay true to me. Yeah. So it was a good time. I'll have that up on YouTube for training blog stuff. uh, In addition to the adductor rehab stuff I did after my last meet. And uh, so we'll have that last few announcements that will pop into this podcast. Uh, our app is available on the Apple App Store. So if you are a Blue Bubble person, you got a, you got an iPhone, you can get our download our free app. You could log training, you can log uh, body weight, body composition changes. Uh, you can access all the templates on there. We have a bunch of free content on there, including the new Strongman, the free Strongman templates there now. Um, so you can check that out. Um, and then you can direct access to all of our articles, etc. So just go to the App Store, search Barbell Medicine. You can download it. Um, I've linked that in the description below. Also, um, we are trying to bring on some sponsors to the podcast so we can outsource some of the production, increase the quality of our content, really focus on bringing the nuance to the latest health and fitness developments. So to do that, we need to generate some, some funds. We've never done any advertisements on here never any paid stuff. Uh, so we're trying to get a few key select sponsors and we, for that, we need some information from you guys. So we have a survey also linked in the description below. So check that out. And lastly, head over to our website. We've got new apparel all in stock. Uh, you can access all of our free articles and templates and this, that, and the other. That's linked in the description as well. Now, this podcast, again, is episode 177. We're talking about blood pressure. Likely going to split this into two parts. This and the next podcast are uh, intended to accompany 
three blood pressure articles. We have one that's been up for a while, like the effect of exercise on blood pressure and two brand new articles penned by Austin Baraki. I think Alex Kovaleski also helped you out on these articles, uh, basically an introduction to what is blood pressure? You know, why is it being elevated chronically at rest bad for you and uh, what to do about it? So all of those are also linked in the description below as well, as well as all the resources that we talk about within this podcast. So any further ado, let us begin. First off, let's talk about what is blood pressure. So blood pressure is the force that is distributed over the surface of the arterial vessels. We use the term pressure instead of tension, which is another way to describe force, uh, because tension is determined in a single direction, while pressure can be used uh, to describe the forces that are applied over the curved surfaces of blood vessels. Um, This would technically have the units of force per cross-sectional area, which is measured as millimeters of mercury. That's a function of history, but basically all of the uh, tools that we use, the instruments we use to measure blood pressure, the mercury sphygmomanometer. Well done. You you guys should be impressed with that. (laughs) You guys should be impressed with me saying that. Uh, That's what we use before these electronic blood pressuring uh, measuring devices, which are aneroid, which means they don't use a fluid. It's another impressive uh, tip you can use at the <laughs> at the bar later to uh, uh, show your intelligence. Um, but effectively, they would measure uh, the force of the blood uh, moving through the brachial artery, that's the artery in the arm, and it would displace a column of mercury. Um, and so this is just measured. That's why we measure blood pressure as millimeters of mercury. Uh, in any case, there are three basic types of energy that go into generating blood pressure. One is elastic, one is kinetic, and the other is gravitational. Now, elastic is the one you're probably most uh, familiar with, and it's also the most significant, meaning it has the biggest sort of impact on blood pressure when we measure it. So the volume of blood that's inside the blood vessels stretches the blood vessels, and there's an elastic recoil force kind of keeping <laughs> the vessel in, in, uh, intact in its sort of shape, uh, and this creates pressure. Normal blood flow is pulsatile, so, and this is due to the heart muscle filling up with blood when it's relaxed, that's diastole, that's the bottom number on blood pressure, uh, and then ejecting it, injecting blood into the vessels when it's contracting. Um, that's known as systole, that's the top number on a blood pressure. So if your blood pressure is 120 over 80, the top number is your systolic blood pressure, that's the pressure of blood moving through vessels when the heart's beating, actively contracting, and the bottom number is the diastolic blood pressure, that is the Uh, pressure of blood moving through the vessels when the heart is relaxed. Um, The components of elastic energy, one is called elastance and the other is called compliance. Elastance is the resistance to stretch. So the blood vessels have some resistance to stretch and compliance, which is the ease of stretch. Those both change in blood vessels over long periods of time. Uh, So for example, in exercise, some vessels will become more resistant to stretch. Others will become uh, more compliant or easy to stretch. Uh, with high blood pressure or diabetes or other sort of vascular disease. Uh, Many vessels will become uh, more resistant to stretch, and that can actually uh, cause problems in addition to increasing blood pressure, but also uh, organ damage because not enough blood is getting to the organs supplied by by those blood vessels. So that's the first type. That is elastic energy. Again, you can think about the sort of bolus or uh, uh, amount of blood that is being injected into the blood vessel itself, sort of distends the blood vessel or tries to, and then the vessel itself kind of uh, keeps its shape and has a force called the recoil force, uh, which creates pressure. 
Second type of energy that creates blood pressure is the kinetic force. This is basically the force of a moving blood column through the vessels. So the faster the blood moves, the higher rate of speed, the higher velocity uh, the blood is traveling, the more force that it applies to the blood vessels themselves. So this makes up a small amount of total force of systolic blood pressure. That's the top number at rest. But during exercise, when the amount of blood leaving the heart increases by you know five, six times, that is a much larger mechanism by which blood pressure is created. So blood pressure of, for example, 180 over 120 at rest has been achieved by a different mechanism than that same blood pressure during exercise. We'll talk about that more later. The third and final and almost insignificant, but not quite, uh, uh, energy that goes into creating blood pressure is called the gravitational uh, energy. Um, basically, when we are measuring blood pressure, we're trying to eliminate the gravitational effect of blood flow uh, on our measurement. And that's why we measure the uh, blood pressure at the brachial artery. Again, that's in the arm, the antecubital fossa, if you are an anatomical nerd uh, like I am. You, you know, as a member, Austin, this is a sidebar. I was a member of AAA and during my master's program. I know what you're thinking, like AAA, like car insurance. Why are you talking about that? Oh, no. It's that's an anatomy group, American Anatomical <laughs> Association. And let me tell you that uh, that group got some heavy hitters in there. All right. So uh, anyway, during AAA, if I would have said in the arm, they'd be like, we're in the arm. That's a very large structure. So. Similarly, you may you may be surprised to continue your sidebar that there is something known as the International Club of Ascites uh, that that Tom is a very, <laughs> very big fan of. It's a very specific organization. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so the gravitational effect on on blood and blood pressure we try to eliminate by taking the blood pressure uh, at a level where gravity doesn't really have an effect from our reference level. And our, the reference level is at the level of the heart. So what we do is we measure the force of blood through the brachial artery in the antecubital fossa. That's the little bend between your forearm and your, and your biceps, as it were, um, while that vessel is at the level of the heart approximately. So effectively you're trying to eliminate any gravitational effect. Now, if you try to measure the blood vessel, the blood pressure of an individual in their head, you can do this with a transducer, the blood pressure of a person who's, you know, if we measured it normally, their blood pressure would be 110 over 70. For example, if you measured it at their head, it would be like 66 over 26. And you're like, look, seems low, but a lot of gravitational effect there. On the other hand, if you measured it at their foot, much lower than the reference level, the pressure would be 198 over 158. And you'd be like, this person's got high blood pressure. So it's important to know the effect of gravity on blood pressure when you're measuring blood pressure. And that's why we try to measure it at the level of the heart, which is the reference level where there's minimal effect of gravity. Now I know what people are thinking. They're like, so you mean if I take my blood pressure at altitude, it's going to be different? Uh, not really. They've actually done this. There's a test. There's a study out there where they measured people's blood pressure at a base camp on Mount Everest, not a bait, like true base camp, but like they went partway up the mountain <laughs> and I forget the exact altitude they were at. Uh, but that's as basically as far as away as you can get from the earth's crust while still being on terra firma, still being on ground. And there was a point zero two percent effect on measured blood pressure. So I wouldn't yeah. take out like factor in altitude. Uh, but yeah, anyway, just make sure you measure it at the reference level if you're going to measure this at home. And then if you're getting it measured in the clinic, make sure they're doing it, you know, with your the the cuff and everything around heart level, because if not, you know, some unwanted effects on that on that number. 
Yeah. Sim- similarly, you know, in that vein, there's some interesting kind of like animal based trivia that people may have heard of, like a giraffe, for example, if you check their blood pressure, if you check it at the level of their heart, it's like 300 over 180 or something like that, because that's how much pressure they have to generate to like pump this blood miles up their neck to get it all the way up to their head. But at the head level, it's like, you know, pretty like, quote unquote, normal for, you know, for what we would think of as like a human type blood pressure to get it all the way up there. And then I imagine if you checked it in the feet, it would be quite high uh, as well. So uh, definitely right. And this this has some you know implications for when we're measuring people's blood pressure, trying to do it correctly, um, which we'll, we'll get to later on, making sure that, you know, in addition to things we'll talk about, like the cuff size and things like that, that you're doing it at the right level. Okay, so here's a question on a giraffe. Does it have like a really short length shirt and then high waisted pants? <laughs> or does it have a really long shirt and normal pants? If you were a quadruped, I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. Uh, okay. So that's what blood pressure is. Again, it is the pressure it is the force that the column of blood exerts or is measured on the actual arterial vessel wall. And we do that at the reference level. Uh, that's the level of the heart. It's in, done in the arm. Um, so what is high blood pressure? What's normal blood pressure, Rocky? I think that's not, it's not an area of debate in medical you know, in, in the medical scene. But I think because this has changed somewhat recently, some people are like, oh, that's pre-hypertension or this is high blood pressure, normal or whatever. So what, how do those actually break down now? Yeah. So there's, there's some interesting history uh, around this. And, and I think it's probably worth, worth starting more there that it took us a long time to even figure out this whole idea of, of blood pressure. And uh, even all the way into the mid 1800s or so, you know, we started to figure out ways to assess blood pressure. Um, but it was thought and it was found that, hey, as people get older, their blood pressures typically get higher and higher. And it was just thought to be an essential part of aging. Um, it was just a, a something that that happens and is, uh, you know, a normal process or is something that we can't or should don't really need to do anything about anyway. Um, and it wasn't until much later, like the mid 1900s, 1950s, 60s, Framingham study timeframe, things like that, where we started to actually see like, hey, persistently high resting blood pressure is a pretty significant risk factor for, you know, cardiovascular disease, things like heart attacks, strokes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that is kind of where we started to recognize like, hey, there is a threshold above which, you know, uh, it is undesirably high. Um, and and it's been quite a process over time to figure out like, what are we going to, where are we going to put that cutoff, right? Because we've talked about this before, like on other, you know, medically oriented episodes and talking about screening and blood tests and things like that. Most of these physiological variables exist on a spectrum. There's not like a yes, no, it's clearly high, it's clearly low. It's just a spectrum of values and blood pressure, of course, is included in that. And so we have to set a cutoff someplace. And so these cutoffs, and the, or at least the way we think about them in terms of like, when do we get worried and start treating patients and start doing things about this, those have kind of shifted in subtle ways over time. And so at this point, the, the current kind of uh, thought process, the current consensus is that a quote unquote normal blood pressure, something below 120 for your systolic, the top number of blood pressure in millimeters of mercury over 80 for the bottom number in millimeters of mercury. And there are some some additional nuance to this that we'll get to in a bit, but that's kind of a fair, you know, baseline cutoff that is set. Not absolutely perfect, but good enough. Um, as it starts to creep up over that, we start to view it as being more elevated. So as it creeps up higher into the 120s, up to 129 for the top number, um, then we start to pay a little bit more attention and say this is this is elevated. Uh, for stage one hyper, hypertension, which is the fancy medical word for high blood pressure, 
when that top number starts to definitely gets into the 130s, creeps up 130 to 139, or the bottom number between 80 and 89. Um, and then stage two, uh, when the systolic or top number is over 140, um, or, or the bottom number is over 90. And, and you don't have to meet both of these. You can have one or the other. So either the top number can be elevated or the bottom number can be elevated. We think about these in slightly different ways, um, probably a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but that's kind of the spectrum that we're, that we're working in here. So the higher those numbers go, as far as resting blood pressures, again, this is separate from exercise blood pressures, which I know we'll keep coming back to, um, the higher the long-term risk would be associated with that. Whereas maintaining a resting blood pressure in that lower quote unquote normal range or less uh, is generally going to be associated with a lower risk of complications. So that's kind of how that, that breaks down. Yeah. And these guidelines, these are the, these are from 2017, the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association. Uh, this was an update because prior to then, if you had a blood pressure at systolic blood pressure, the top number of 125 or something, the doctor would, you know, patch on the back. Hey, you're good to go. You, you know, all systems, all systems clear. Um, and, and so effectively overnight, millions of Americans and other, uh, uh, and in other places where they follow these guidelines, um, became, you know, they, now they have elevated blood pressure. Uh, and so the, the, the skeptic listening is like big pharma, they're behind this, they're behind this recommendation. Um, but in, in actuality, when you read the, you know, it's a couple, it, it's not 200 pages, it's getting close for these, when these guidelines came out, um, they specifically do not recommend pharmaceutical management of individuals with elevated blood pressure. Again, that's between 120 and 129 on the top number, systolic blood pressure. Um, they recommend lifestyle intervention. The idea was to catch things earlier rather than like let them progress where people actually had stage one or stage two. And so the idea was instead of saying, yeah, 125, you're good to go. It's, yeah, you're, you're starting to trend towards uh, a level that's uh, that may increase risk um, of elevated blood pressure, high blood pressure related uh, medical conditions. And so you'd want to intervene earlier rather than later. Um, do you remember that like shift when you were training? Cause this was like right in the smack dab in the middle of your residency. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even, um, I can recall definitely like for people who didn't have certain medical conditions, like a history of stroke or, you know, diabetes and complications, things like that. We weren't really even sweating them until they were over 140, over 90, like most of the rest we weren't doing, doing a whole lot with. And of course, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had about like who is most likely to benefit, who is less likely to benefit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and those debates continue to, to rage on in, in medicine. But uh, definitely, you know, accumulated evidence a little bit since then um, that definitely, you know, aiming to maintain these lower blood pressures uh, is likely to reduce long-term risk. And if you can do that through lifestyle uh, uh, measures alone, that's fantastic. If you can't, then there's a conversation to be had around the use of medicines and whether somebody's use of medicines uh, is more likely to provide them benefit than it is to to provide them harm. And so that's kind of the way we go about these decisions in practice. Yeah. Interesting that the Joint National Commission, the JNC7 recommendations, which were published, I think in 2014, maybe, uh, that actually may be JNC8. I, I can't remember. It, it was a while ago. Anyway, and before these recommendations, they made the, the claim that if you had a systolic blood pressure greater than 115, for every, you know, like 10 millimeters of mercury went up, it basically doubled your risk of heart attack or stroke. And that was 115. Yet we were routinely letting people with 125, 130 kind of slide because we're like, well, you know, well, you're not at 140. And at just at, at that point, I, I, I can't speak to like what the level of data was because I had, you know, 
me kind of analyzing the hundreds of thousands of whatever studies and cutting them off at that time point. I'm just not, I just can't do it, you know, one yeah, day. It, but interesting that it changed. Well, I think that that, that uh, kind of association or that observation definitely still stands that as blood pressure goes up over like that 117, 115 over 75 or so range, we do start to see risk go up. But that's a different question than taking somebody who is above that and treating them down like with medicines, how, how likely are they to benefit? Those are kind of like two separate questions. So you can show the association on the way up, but you'd have to prove yep. the benefit on the way back down, um, which, which yep. is where things get tricky. So, Yep. Just a brief aside about how these should be measured. So again, the blood pressure cuff needs to be fitted to your arm. So if you've got huge guns, you're going to need a bigger cuff. If you've got smaller guns, maybe guns, you know, in training, uh, then you need a smaller cuff. So the cuff needs to be appropriately sized. Again, it needs to be at the reference levels at heart level. Um, also you need to be ideally sitting in a quiet room for about 20 to 30 minutes prior to measurement. You need to not be in a ton of pain, uh, empty bladder, or at least not having to go to the bathroom. Cause all of these things can cause spurious readings on a blood pressure reading in the office. And so, I mean, that makes a case for if somebody does have elevated blood pressure or high blood, you know, hypertension, stage one or stage two, and it's the first time you see that, you know, maybe you follow them up outpatient. And we'll talk about that as far as measuring people's blood pressure while they're free living and kind of seeing what the average is over the day. Um, but yeah, if you're getting your blood pressure measured, ideally you didn't, you know, come in late to the, <laughs> to your, to your appointment. Ideally you've gone to the bathroom. Ideally you're hanging out um, for a few minutes, at least prior to getting it measured and that the cuff is appropriate. Um, Austin, I know you and I, we're not, we don't access healthcare a ton because we're reasonably healthy and you know, why, why would we go? Um, so we do, you know, we, we get our, uh, our checkups as needed. Um, but do you, when you went in for your last sort of visit, did you like prophylactically ask for a big cuff? Be like, Hey guys, <laughs> bring out the big guy. All right. <laughs> uh, I don't believe I did. I also have a history of, uh, uh not great in office measurements and, and that's for a variety of reasons. Oftentimes I've just annoyed because I can observe the person doing it incorrectly, or they're like firing a bunch of questions at me while they're checking the blood pressure, which I get the pra practicalities of like doing blood pressure checks in clinics when things are busy and you got people waiting and things like that. So I've checked my own independently of that outside. And I think the last time I checked it, it was like 111 over 65 or something like that. When I did it, yeah. like, according to all the correct steps, which if people want to know what all the correct steps are, they're in part one of the blood pressure article that we put up on the website. They're all listed there very clearly. Yes. Just something to know about. Like if you are, if you, again, if you have bigger than average arms and you're going in, that's something it should be on your radar at least, um, because the, the medical assistant or whoever else is taking, um, your blood pressure may not, you know, have thought about it, or they might not even have it, uh, on the, on the blood pressure monitoring device, blood pressure measuring device already. Um, so in any case, big question, Austin, who should be checking their blood pressure? Is this for everyone? Just for a few people? Like what, who's supposed to get their blood pressure checked? So uh, if anybody's listened to our screening episodes where we've talked about, you know, people just getting tests done, um, you know, they will recognize that we are in general tend towards the skeptical side of people getting things done just to check, just to know, things like that. Uh, this does not fall in that category. Uh, everyone should have their blood pressure checked. Um, the, the current guidelines recommend screening for uh, um, all adults 18 or older, although there are pediatric recommendations for, for children as well, um, to check with office blood pressure measurements. Of course, 
as we've said so far, there are limitations to office blood pressure measurements. There are a bunch of ways that they can go wrong. Uh, and so if they are found to be elevated, the, 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 the numbers, it, the guidelines recommend obtaining blood pressure measurements outside of the clinical setting, meaning outside of a doctor's office or a hospital or something like that. Definitely outside of an ER. If you ended up in an ER for some reason and they checked it, you sh- we should also be getting blood pressure measurements outside of that setting to confirm the diagnosis before we you know initiate some sort of a treatment strategy or something like that. So a lot of people will get it checked in an office and then in some situations, somebody might start want to treat them right away, which is typically not the right move um, in most situations. I won't say all, but in most situations. Um, or they might get it checked in the office and then they bring it back and recheck in the office and they never check it outside of an office setting. Also, not really consistent with what our current guidelines are. Um, so there are a bunch of ways to do this outside of a, a doctor's office or outside of the, the clinical setting, um, which, you know, uh, uh, depending on people's, again, resources and access to things, some people choose to get their own. There are relatively inexpensive blood pressure machines that can be obtained for less than 20 or 30 bucks. Um, and they should be, you know, properly calibrated and validated. There's a website uh, called validatebp.org that lists current uh, uh, validated blood pressure, uh, uh, home blood pressure machines. Um, and it would be ideal to get something off of that website. And we don't have any kind of relationship with that website. It's just a, a, a resource for that kind of a thing. And then checking them at home um, or outside of the clinical setting using all the steps that we have mentioned. But basically to summarize, everyone should be getting their blood pressure checked. And there are very few things. I don't know that they're, they're uh, too in, this, in the realm of screening that we recommend that broadly, uh, but this is one where we do. Yeah. So, so I think it also bears repeating that we're recommending that everybody gets their blood pressure checked. Uh, if you happen to see a physician, go, get into a clinical setting, you know, on a yearly basis and we're checking the box off there. If it happens to be elevated at that visit, then yeah, some additional sort of steps need to be taken. Like maybe you need to be monitoring this at home, get it, get in a device off of that website or that's been listed by that website would be a good option. But if, if your blood pressure is good to go, you, you don't need to like keep a running log. You don't need to start an Excel spreadsheet where you're like measuring your blood pressure every day just to like watch it. That's not really the case. You, it, it is something that we do recommend people uh, getting checked periodically. Uh, you know, yearly seems to be fine unless you have an abnormality, in which case you'd want to check it more often uh, either to confirm that, hey, you do in fact have elevated blood pressure or uh, even higher than that, or that your blood pressure is fine. Or the third, or if you're actually managing it with medication or lifestyle that is trending in the right direction, you're getting to goal, so to speak. So if somebody's evaluating their blood pressure at home because they've had an abnormal reading in the clinical setting, like how long do they need to do that before coming back to their doctor and saying, hey, here's what it was. I mean, ideally there's a, a follow-up visit, you know, that's been scheduled to like review the results, but you know, how long do people need this for a month? Is this three months? I mean, is what's the length of time? Yeah, you, you definitely don't need that much data to get a good sense of, of where somebody's at. And this is something that's been researched. And I mentioned this in the article series on the website uh, with the, with some references to, to support the, the recommendation that if you're going to do this, say at home, for example, checking three days of blood pressure measurements, two in the morning and two in the evening on each day is sufficient to give a good enough kind of set of data to make decisions on. Um, so, so doing it two times in the morning, they could even be, you know, 
back to back basically, and two in the evening, and then doing that three days in a row gives more than enough uh, uh, data to get some 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 quality uh, uh, plans in place. If that is asking too much, and all we have to go on is a, is a bit less than that, again, I've made decisions on much less than that as far as blood pressure measurements outside the clinic. But that's like kind of an evidence based recommendation for uh, what you can do to to get some good data for your doctor. Yeah, and it should be noted that. We call that ambulatory blood pressure monitoring because you're just like out in the world, you know, living your life, living your best life, ideally. But those measurements do tend to be lower than what's seen in the office. So, again, it's important. We would definitely recommend following up with your physician if you are taking that step, um, because if you're measuring at home and now you're at, on average, 120, right on the number, um, you know, over over 80, right on the number it may not suggest what exactly you think it suggests, meaning that the number, you know, that number itself and you're good to go and you don't need any further follow-up. Again, we just recommend continuing to follow up with your physician to make a, to develop a shared plan um, that ultimately helps you out. doesn't mean you might, you know, necessarily need treatment or whatever, but it's good to, again, kind of dot the I's, cross the T's, put a bow on it. Um, We have a bunch of stuff on those articles on how to measure this correctly. So 10 out of 10 would recommend reading those if you are uh, interested. Okay, so the multi-billion dollar question, Austin, what in the heck actually causes high blood pressure? Like, why is this the thing? Because back in the day, back in, you know, the 60s and 50s or whatever, again, as you said, we just thought as you aged, you know, your age should be your diastolic blood pressure, the bottom number, and you're good to go. And now all of a sudden there's all this concern over the top number, systolic blood pressure. But like, what even causes blood pressure to go up? Like, why is this the thing? This is a pretty massive question, massive field of research, (laughs) one that is uh, continuing to evolve. We're learning all sorts of uh, weird stuff, even very recently, um, as far as uh, how blood pressure, how how high blood pressure develops. Um, But so there's a complicated set of reasons that we see very commonly in practice. And people can have different kind of... um, uh, 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 different variables that are at play for their kind of high blood pressure. So typically in practice, we divide high blood pressure into primary, what used to be called quote unquote essential. Again, that essential term is weird and just is uh, kind of a relic of back when it was thought to just be a normal part of part of aging. Uh, but primary just means you have high blood pressure and we don't have a single clear identifiable r- medical reason for it. Um, Whereas secondary high blood pressure means that there is one single very clear driver of this high blood pressure. For example, you have like a tumor that's secreting a particular hormone that drives your blood pressure up or something like that. So that'd be an example of secondary. So the overwhelming majority of high blood pressure that we see in practice is probably more in this primary realm. Somebody just tends to have it. Um, Now there are certainly variables even within that realm that can influence it, but may not be the sole kind of single driving cause that if we just fix that one thing, everything else gets better. So just to list a few of the common drivers, we see individuals who carry excess body fat, in particular, um, the more harmful kind of body fat that we've talked about before, not quite as much the kind that is deposited under the skin, more so that's in the belly, in in and around the abdominal organs, things like that. That tends to be body fat that is more uh, uh, harmful for a variety of things. It secretes a bunch of hormones and a bunch of inflammatory molecules and things like that, that through a variety of mechanisms lead to our blood vessels squeezing tighter, um, and can cause us to retain additional fluid and increase overall blood volume. So you have more volume of blood 
inside blood vessels that are squeezed tighter. And so based on those kinds of energy that you talked about earlier that contribute to blood pressure, you can see how that would, you know, necessarily lead to an increase in blood pressure. Of course, that is uh, very much a simplification, but that's one example. So, so body fat, uh, um, and as it, you know, relates to things like insulin resistance and, and metabolic syndrome, diabetes, things like that, those all kind of tend to run together pretty commonly. And so this will end up being one pretty major target that we'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, anything you wanted to add on that one? I just thought it was interesting when we first were looking at sort of body fat mediated effects, particularly on blood pressure. We're like, yeah, if you've got a lot of visceral adipose tissue, body fat, um, it's very active. Like you said, producing a bunch of hormones, particularly ones that are inflammatory, it causes you to retain salt water, uh, you know, and constrict the blood vessels. And you're like, wow, that's bad, bad, bad. And then on top of that, if you are storing a bunch of extra body fat, again, in that, uh, in the abdomen, the abdominal cavity, it tends to actually be on some of the organs themselves. There's like a mechanical, uh, element there too, particularly on the adrenal glands, which are these small little, uh, organs on top of the kidneys. Um, and so if you give those, those guys a squeeze, they tend to like additionally constrict the blood vessels retain more salt and water. And so, you, you know, you're getting like a double hit kind of effect here. Uh, I remember bringing that up to you. This was probably like, I don't know, four or five years ago. And you were like, that's a zebra dude. Like, I, I don't know, <laughs> but, but more and more data has come out about this, which, yeah. and it just gets inter interesting. So there's like a metabolic, uh, effect there for sure with all the hormones from the body fat tissue itself, but then the mechanical cause is also, it, it's a thing too. And so not just, you know, achieving a health promoting body weight, but also body fat level, uh, tends to be uh, really important, which is again w can lead you to understand why the waist circumference uh, measurement is is part of our screening for obesity and also sort of weight management. Um, so it's not just oh you got a normal BMI and send you out the door. That's why all of these national international organizations also recommend a waist circumference to see like well where is your body fat actually deposited, and the waist circumference can do a really good job of that. Other people are talking about waist to hip ratios and this, that, and the other. But the important part of that whole discussion is that the waist circumference gives you a good enough idea, particularly when it's combined with BMI, that there's no advantage to using a waist to hip ratio. Uh, and this scales across heights and this, that, and the other. And you get the data to back it up. So just an interesting sort of aside there is like, it's not just metabolic, but there's actually some mechanical uh, impacts there as well. Um, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of other causes we should go over. Um, Austin, I'll let you take over this list here. Sure. So, so obviously as it relates to body fat, then you have things like physical activity habits and diet that both play into both body fat, uh, as a indirect kind of drivers of high blood pressure, but also have their own defect, uh, direct effects as well. So, you know, generally physically inactive sedentary lifestyles have a whole host of consequences that again are beyond the scope, not necessarily we need to get into detail on, uh, but can contribute to some of these mechanisms. And and just to back up for a second, like the overall regulation of blood pressure relates to a few different organs in particular. You know, there's the nervous system, um, the nerves, those all kind of control how tightly our blood vessels squeeze. There's the blood vessels themselves. Um, there's our heart and how much blood it's pumping out. And then our kidneys that are regulating um, kind of how much salt and water we're either peeing out or retaining in our body. Um, and then a bunch of hormones that are kind of overseeing this whole orchestra <laughs> between the nervous system, the cardiovascular system and the kidneys. And so all of these different variables that we get into that we talk about, they, to the extent that they drive blood pressure up, they influence it via one or more of these different organ systems, the nervous system, the cardiovascular system, hormones, or, or the kidneys. And so physical activity, 
uh, to the extent that somebody is physically inactive, sedentary lifestyle, obviously that has a variety of complications on multiple of those systems. Diet, dietary quality, um, there's a bunch of variables that we'll get into there as well, particularly as it relates to um, dietary uh, uh, components like sodium and potassium. Um, there's probably some beneficial role for certain plant compounds and fiber and things like that, as well as just overall energy intake as it relates to body fat. Um, sleep and sleep quality is a huge one, probably pretty under-recognized by, by most folks in terms of how much sleep impairment, either insufficient sleep or poor quality sleep, um, uh, can drive blood pressure up. And this includes a very common and underdiagnosed condition called obstructive sleep apnea. It's a breathing disorder, um, which I have a new article coming out on or just came out on this past, this past week um, that we'll probably chat about again in the future. And then beyond these basic things, body fat, physical activity, diet, sleep, all the basic health promoting behaviors that we have talked about for all 177 episodes so far, more or less. Um, there are other medical specific things. So there are certain drugs and medications that may drive blood pressure ups. People may have, again, medical conditions that themselves directly drive up blood pressure. That would be more that secondary kind of high blood pressure, not the primary kind. And then again, in general, blood pressure tends to go up with age. Um, this is an interesting one mainly because it's observed more so in our kind of uh, um, populations in the developed world. Um, if you look, there are data on certain hunter-gatherer populations um, that live that continue to live in their own kind of historical, you know, environment setting context, living the same lifestyle that they always have for forever. Um, and these hunter-gatherers can go throughout life and never really manifest much high blood pressure, even at older age. However, if they move into our quote unquote modern, more developed society, um, over the course of lifespan, they do tend to see blood pressure go up. And this is probably a consequence of a variety of lifestyle changes, dietary changes that happen. So the age one is kind of interesting on that front. And then there's certainly some genetic contributors. There are some people who we've, I've seen, who we've consulted with, who are lean and active and have a great diet and they sleep well, and they don't have any other identifiable medical conditions and they're young and yet they still have high blood pressure. Um, and so there are certainly some genetic contributors that can be at play. We'll see this more often in people who have just a super strong family history of high blood pressure and stroke and heart disease and in, in many members of their family uh, uh, over generations, uh, potentially, or in siblings and things like that. So that's just a small handful and incomplete listing of variables that can contribute to high blood pressure. We, talk, we get into all these more in the article series, uh, but these are kind of the main ones that when I'm consulting with somebody with high blood pressure that I tend to be thinking about ticking off as many of these boxes as I can, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to having conversations, particularly with people who want to try to avoid using medicines, um, which is a common conversation that I have. And so it's like, well, here are the other things that we can work on to try to get there. And if we maximize those, or we do as much as we're willing to on those things, then maybe it's time we, we have that conversation. Yep. Now, if you have somebody that's basically addressing all of this stuff, you know, they've changed their dietary pattern, they've lost body fat and now are otherwise, you know, either approaching or at their, their current target, their physical activity has changed to a matter where you're like, man, you're, you're really doing the work here. That's, that's great. You've ruled out, uh, sleep apnea and all this other sort of stuff and, and any medications or other medical conditions. At that point, you're going into zebra territory. It, you know, you're, it doesn't mean that your job is done. You're like, don't know. <laughs> um, but there, there's other stuff. And we don't want to say that, you know, high blood pressure is, you know, entirely just a, a disease of lifestyle or other sort of or natural. And certainly wouldn't just, we wouldn't just call it a disease of aging. Um, there are other conditions that can cause high blood pressure. And so this sort of thorough workup to make sure, again, all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed is important. And this needs to be done under the watchful eye 
of a clinician. So 10 out of 10 would recommend, you know, interfacing with your, your primary care provider and not just trying to do this piecemeal on your own saying, well, I was at the Walgreens. I measured my blood pressure. It was elevated. So now I'm going to do these things and then recheck it here in a few weeks or months or whatever. That's a great way to like, you know, take, take control, take charge and, and start making health promoting steps. But there are other things that need to, you just need that level of expertise. And so would recommend getting your doctor on board, which is kind of why the screening, I think the screening interval has been set up in a way like everybody should be getting their blood pressure measured in it, you know, in the clinic. And so that way you can identify like who actually needs more, you know, care or more intervention. So I just don't want people to get the idea like, ah, I could just do this on my own. It's like, mm, probably need, probably need some, some expertise. I think that's a fair, Austin agrees. Fair argument. <laughs> Austin agrees. I will tell you, I'll share a story. You remember when I got hit in the eye with a golf ball when mm-hmm. it, uh, and, and it got infected and the whole thing, I went into the e- ER finally when I was like, you know, blind out of the one eye <laughs> and I was like, the, and the first thing they do is I'm in the little triage room and they're like, they're putting a blood pressure cuff on me. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, well, we just check blood pressure on everyone in here. I was like, I mean, it's in my eye. I'm in a bunch of pain. Like my blood pressure is going to be high. Also that cuff. I remember saying, I was like, that cuff's definitely too small. And, uh, the, the nurse was like, uh, what do you do for a living? I'm like, well, I'm a doctor, but only on the internet. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying like my blood pressure is kind of meaningless at this point. Um, unless you think that this is a vascular pathology, but I, 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 def- I definitely don't. And so they still took it. And of it was, <laughs> it was, I, of course, yeah, yeah. And they did not change the cuff, which again was not great, but, uh, it was still, it was elevated due to pain. In addition to the cuff being smaller, it was in the high one twenties or whatever. And she's like, well, you have elevated blood pressure. I'm like, that checks out. That makes sense. Uh, <laughs> but as you mentioned, you know, the ED is not really the time to do this unless you're worried about like a blood pressure related urgent emergency, emergency on the, case. on the high end or on the low end. Yeah. I don't want to make sure you're not in shock or having a stroke. <laughs> Is there a blood pressure related emergency in the ER? Are ER physicians listening anxiously to this podcast or waiting? Absolutely. For us to it's be called like, hypertensive <laughs> emergency. Yeah. 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 It's a whole it. thing. Do you, uh, you refer people? Well, you're not in the clinic anymore, but you know. Oh, so this is actually worth commenting on because, and I think ER doctors will be happy that this gets mentioned. So blood pressure, uh, you know, we mentioned how it can cause a variety of health related complications. It can increase the risk of stroke, heart attack. Uh, a variety of other complications over time. Now, uh, the way it does this is through progressive injury to these tissues and damage to these tissues and, and, and plaque buildup and things like that in the blood vessels, which occurs over the course of years to decades. And I think that people have typically a little bit more misguided idea of how high blood pressure causes these complications. They think that if the blood pressure goes up, you know, uh, uh, say it goes up to 170 over, you know, 100 or something like that, that just that it went up to that blood pressure in the short term, that that is going to, you'll hear people say, it's going to cause you to stroke out, man. And this is, is I know true? this from comments that I get on my, my deadlift post, which I know, I know we'll get into the exercise related piece later. But again, that's not the way that chronic high resting blood pressure contributes to risk. It's not through these kind of sudden fluctuations. It's a process that takes years to decades. And so this means that if you go, say you went to the clinic and they checked your blood pressure and it was 170 over 90 or 100 or something like that, and you had no symptoms, you felt fine, felt like your normal self, you had no idea that this was the case. This is something that you have time to work on and to figure out. They should probably be rechecking it, making sure that it was done correctly, the right size cuff, all that kind of stuff. 
But even if it persists in that high range and you have absolutely no issues going on, no symptoms, this is something that we typically just, if it's in that range, you will probably get recommended to start some some medications, but these can be oral, um, and bring things down relatively gradually. Um, this is not something that needs immediate emergency treatment. Now, a lot of thing, a lot of patients still, if somebody sees a number that scares them, they still send patients to ERs. ER doctors hate this, um, or they tell them check your blood pressure at home all the time, and if you see any number higher than this, go to the ER. Again, ER doctors hate this. Um, I also do because less often these days, although it's happened in the past, where I might get called to admit somebody like this, and and I may decline. But um, but this is uh, fortunately something that uh, is happening less, I think, but it's still very present in like people's minds in general, that uh, if the number is high, then I must go to an ER. It's not that simple. Um, and so typically the conversation I'm having with people is that, hey, there's a lot of things that we can do. We have time to work on this outside of like very small minorities of situations that we call a, 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 an emergency related to high blood pressure, which is accompanied by, you know, signs, symptoms of organ damage, injury, crushing, chest pain, you know, stroke-like symptoms, things like that. But a high number with absolutely no other issues is not something that typically requires like emergency type treatment. We got time to work on it. Yeah. I really, there was a, like a sidebar from the, uh, what an international diagnostic manual. It's not a diagnostic manual. I forget. What's the international headache? A society, it's like IDSHA or something, some some international organization. They they were basically on board with the the blood pressure guidelines at the time, the JNC eight, and they were like, "There's actually when when studied, there's an inverse relationship with headache frequency and blood pressure." So it's like you know the first question you ask somebody when they have these blood pressures in the one eighties, one seventies is like, "Do you have a headache?" like well, you the actual opposite is is what occurs or you know do you feel like you're going to pass out it's like these are not the things that we're actually looking for we're more looking for things that you can't really tell us about unless you have again the crushing chest pain or you know uh something like that so yeah hopefully the er docs listening to this you know all all two of them are like thanks guys um <laughs> okay so we've alluded to the reasons why an elevated resting blood pressure is bad. We, we've kind of danced around it. I just really want to nail this home. We'll finish with why is elevated blood pressure during exercise not bad. Uh, and then we'll save the rest for part two. But Austin, just briefly, like, okay, we know what causes, what blood pressure is, what causes high blood pressure, the numerous uh, factors that can contribute there. But why is it bad? Like, what's the deal, man? Like, okay, the number is a little bit higher. So what? You know, is it a high yes. score? I win. Like, what's the deal? <laughs> so th this is kind of some of that history that I was describing earlier, where in the like 1800s, it was thought to be pretty normal. Early 1900s were like getting on our feet, figuring out how to measure this stuff, studying it, you know, again. And then by the mid like 50s, 60s time frame, again, these Framingham data and, and that time studies of that era um, is when we started to identify it as like, oh, this is pretty clearly, as, you know, associated with high heart disease risk. And and kind of like I mentioned earlier, we know now we know more confidently in like meta-analyses of over a million patients, that risk across all age groups starts to go up as people's blood pressure increases over 115 over 75, either either number. But again, that's a different question than like, okay, if the blood pressure is higher than that, if I treat it back down to that level, does risk also go back down? Mm -hmm. So that is something that we had to prove subsequent to that. And so that's where studies started to emerge in, you know, 60s, Time frame and later, so the, the the VA hospital system in the in the states actually provided a pretty handy uh, set of hospitals 
in which you could run large multi-center trials. Um, and this is like in the early days of randomized controlled trials in medicine. Like one of the first ones on tuberculosis treatment was ha had happened like only about 20 years earlier. So the first VA cooperative study was published in 1967 and they had 167 veterans who had severe high blood pressure. Their bottom number was between 115 and 129. That is very high for the bottom number. That's high. Right? Yeah. Well, we would prefer That's to be your top number. Number. And so, so those patients were basically randomized to get blood pressure lowering medicines. They used one of three medicines. Two of the three medicines are garbage meds that we don't use anymore, but they lower blood pressure. And that's what they used at the time. And they were either randomized to get those medicines or placebo. And they were followed for just a year and a half. So like in the picture, in the time frame, again, remember I said that blood pressure causes problems over the course of like years to decades. And so if anything, a study of patients with high blood pressure for just a year and a half is going to be like on the low end for how many complications mm -hmm. and deaths you would expect to see from high blood pressure, because it's a short time frame compared to the usual, you know, time course of the disease. And so what they found in this study was that in the placebo arm, people who did not get treated, there were four deaths and there were zero in the treatment arm. And in the placebo arm, there were 27, quote, morbid events is what they call them. That's like heart attacks and strokes and, again, complications of high blood pressure versus only two in the treatment arm. Uh, so a pretty substantial difference in a relatively short period of time. Again, only a year and a half for a condition that usually causes problems over the course of years to, to decades. And so this kind of kicked off, you know. Uh, uh, the era of, of uh, blood pressure treatment, because not only had we found that, hey, as blood pressure goes up, it's associates with increases in risk. But additionally, if we treat it down in the other direction, we see risk go back down. And this is kind of a similar paradigm to what we've described with like blood cholesterol levels and blood lipids, right? We see a clear association with risk as levels increase. And then if we treat people and those levels go back down, we see risk goes down, which of course suggests a causal relationship between these things. Um, and so there's been, since that 1967 study, there's been lots more studies since then on blood pressure that have all refined our treatment strategies and which medicines we might use and where our treatment thresholds and cutoffs are and what our goals are and things like that for people with various, uh, uh, you know, uh, health, other health conditions or complications. So that's kind of where the basis comes from for like, hey, this is a problem and this is worth treating. Yeah, especially and again, that's just to make it very clear, that is for resting blood pressure. So while you're sitting there upright, blood pressure measured at the reference level of the heart. So not during exercise. So it begs the question then, like, why is elevated blood pressure during exercise not bad? And so just briefly, like the normal response of the cardiovascular system during exercise, the, the cardiac output, which is the blood that the heart is ejecting when it's contracting, must increase to meet the greater metabolic demands of working muscles. So that happens by increasing the heart rate. So how many times the thing's beating per minute and also the stroke volume, how much blood is actually being ejected per beat. And this is proportional to the intensity of the exercise and the amount of muscle mass being used. So if you were thinking about like a deadlift, you know, set of one at RP 10 versus a one RM biceps curl, those are going to both be high, but the deadlift is going to be higher. It's just more muscle mass being involved. Um, typically during dynamic exercise. So things like running, cycling, um, uh, rowing, um, those types of like locomotive, if you will, type exercises, the cardiac output is four to six times what it is at rest, but it's actually uh, can get approach double that. So close to 10 X, uh, during like lifting. And that's just because the demands of lifting can be acutely very, very high. A lot of it because the muscles themselves are actually collapsing blood vessels. So you're, they're like, shoot, we need more blood. Uh, and then you're using, using a ton of muscle mass, et cetera. So 
In any case, blood pressure will go up during all forms of physical activity. It rises because the total vascular resistance, so like the net sort of uh, degree of vasoconstriction, so blood vessels squeezing down, getting narrower versus vasodilation, blood vessels dilating, getting larger. There's a net amount of vasoconstriction. It is true that the blood vessels that supply the muscles, the active muscles dilate, they get bigger to supply those active tissues with blood, oxygen, et cetera, and carry away waste products. That's true. But the rest of the blood vessels, so the blood vessels in your visceral organs, the organs in your belly that are not, you know, essential to what you're doing. Um, your body doesn't necessarily know if you're you know, running from a bear or if you're trying to deadlift. Um, the rest of those blood vessels uh, constrict a little bit. And so there's a net increase in systemic vascular resistance. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying resistance to blood flow. So blood pressure goes up. Also, because of all this extra cardiac output, way more blood being ejected way more frequently, the velocity of the blood is much, much faster. And that's that kinetic energy component we were talking about. So that increases blood pressure even more. So the blood pressure that we measure during exercise is substantially, it can get to a, a level that is similar to, if not far greater than blood pressures that we would asso associate with hypertensive urgency or emergency. So like very high numbers, um, 200 on the top number, for example, 100 on the bottom number. Those have been measured while people were running, rowing, cycling, et cetera, during graded exercise tests, and even double that during resistance training. They've got a blood pressure measurement on file that's 430, the top number, over 380 on the bottom number during a 1RM leg press. And you're thinking, you're like, holy shit, those are big, big numbers. And to be fair, if I saw that on a blood pressure measuring device and I didn't think that the thing was broken, I'd be like, dude, you got to go to the hospital right now. Like, <laughs> that's so high of a number. But the mechanism by which the blood pressure got there is substantially different than elevated blood pressure during, uh, that's measured at rest. In any case, on average for every increase in a metabolic equivalent, that's a way to measure energy output during exercise for every single increase in uh, metabolic equivalent, one met, two met, three met, four met, five met, etc. There's about a 10, uh, uh, millimeters of mercury increase in systolic blood pressure. So at rest, if you're listening to this and you're not triggered, you're not in pain, you don't have to go to the bathroom. Uh, you're hanging out about one met you're at rest. Uh, and then as you increase the intensity of activity and the amount of muscle mass that you're using to do whatever it is you're doing, um, it goes up by about 10. The bottom number, the diastolic blood pressure generally decreases or stays the same at peak intensity. We don't really pay a ton of attention to that during exercise. Uh, but in any case, this increase in blood pressure that occurs during physical activity, you can't avoid it. There are no physical activities that you can do that lower blood pressure while you're doing them. Um, but this increase in blood pressure that occurs during exercise creates a wide array of adaptive changes in the vascular system that improve its performance and capacity during activity. So for example, you can get more capillaries and very small blood vessels formed in the muscle. You can get alterations in the compliance. So that's the ease of stretch or the elastance, the resistance to stretch in blood vessels. And these are not always in the same direction. Some vessels need to be a little stiffer. Some vessels need to be a little more uh, uh, easy to stretch. Um, but ultimately, all of that improves your ability to tolerate and do and perform the task that you're doing. And then there are cardiac adaptations. So there are four uh, chambers in the heart. Some of these chambers get bigger. Some of them um, gain a little bit more muscle mass. Um, but it, it we'll come back to that later. But all of these adaptations occur over long periods of time, secondary to exercise to help meet the demands that you're doing. 
Um, there, this does raise a question though, is like, is there an abnormal response to exercise with respect to blood pressure? And there are two major ones. One, um, is when blood pressure doesn't go up enough. And the other is when it goes up too quickly, uh, compared to the amount of activity and the type of activity that you're doing. But that, uh, all requires a discussion of like, what is normal? And, in, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of agreement about what is the normal sort of blood pressure reading in exercise. And, and a lot of this has to do with the heterogeneity or difference in activities that people can be performing and their current fitness level, right? So you can imagine you can't really compare running and its blood pressure sort of changes at a given speed versus squatting. Um, you know, they're just, they're different activities and also the general fitness of both individuals and fitness for the task that you're doing. Somebody might be a great runner and might see a much smaller increase in blood pressure. And somebody might be a, a great squatter and they're going to see a, a different, um, uh, change in blood pressure compared to somebody who's never squatted before. But in any case, in the literature, if you go look this up, the common numbers you're going to find for what is a normal sort of top end of blood pressure, uh, for men is 210 or 220 millimeters of mercury and 190 or 180 uh, millimeters of mercury for women for systolic blood pressure. But it should be noted that these are all for dynamic exercises like running on a treadmill, being on a bike, being on a rower, these sort of exercises that are repetitive, that don't really have a long isometric phase where you're not really changing position and you're not producing maximum amounts of force like a 1RM leg press or squat or deadlift or something like that. So anyway, that's what we consider normal with the caveats listed. All right. So two things can go wrong in general. Thing number one, your blood pressure doesn't go up as it should, or it actually drops when it should be continuing to go up. Um, so this is defined as a 10 millimeter of mercury drop in systolic blood pressure, despite an increased workload or need plus ischemia. So somebody's like, you know, they start exercising like a graded uh, treadmill test. So you have them start walking at a low pace and then you bump the incline up a little bit uh, in a few minutes in, and then you increase the pace and you keep doing that. If their blood pressure while it's being monitored goes down and they start having like chest pain or something like that, that would be an indication that they have an abnormal response to exercise. Their blood pressure is not going up as it should, um, or without ischemia, a greater than 20 millimeters of mercury fall from its highest value. This is typically seen in patients with severe coronary artery disease, pulmonary vascular disease, some autonomic disease where the actual like neuromediated uh, neuro signals to the blood vessels to like constrict doesn't either get read or isn't being produced. And so these people, they effectively cannot generate a response to increased energy demands. So they're exercise intolerant um, from that aspect. The other side of the coin is when people have a massive increase in blood pressure that happens far too quickly for the amount of effort that they're producing. Um, so basically these people initiate exercise and when the first few seconds or first minute of exercise, their blood pressure goes up over 220 on the top number uh, and over 115 on the bottom number. But again, that's for dynamic exercise, like a, like a treadmill or bike or row or something like that. And again, unfortunately, these aren't really associated with any sort of specific intensity or exertion level. And so you actually have to go to uh, additional studies to find some sort of like well-described sort of cut point. And that cut point is basically at five metabolic equivalents, which for us would be the equivalent of either a very slow jog or very, very brisk walk. If our blood pressure gets over 150 millimeters of mercury, systolic blood pressure, that indicates, hey man, you have a pretty overactive response here to the challenge because your blood pressure doesn't need to be that high and uh, you're off to the races. 
Some of the follow-up data to that sort of cut point has shown that if an individual has this, they call it a hypertensive response to exercise or HRE, that if somebody has this response to exercise, this actually may predict future high, high blood pressure or uncover masked high blood pressure, which effectively means somebody's going into the clinic for their regular screening intervals, has a normal blood pressure in the clinic, but actually when they're outside the clinic, they have, they spend more time than not with elevated blood pressures, uh, which is obviously something you want to catch, but you wouldn't. I mean, Austin, if a guy or a gal came into your uh, clinic, if you were in the clinic and you measured their blood pressure every time they came in and it was, you know, 110 over 70, there's no way that you're sending them home with an ambulatory blood pressure monitoring sort of device or, or instructions. No, there's not really a standard practice pattern for that. You know, people could still check their own blood pressure outside of the clinic. You know, if you're, if you're in the clinic once a year to get it checked and maybe at the other six month interval, you're doing it yourself at home or something, that would be like a way to catch something like that. The other way would be like somebody whose blood pressure is consistently normal, but they have evidence of blood pressure, high blood pressure related complications. Then that would trigger yeah. me to look for it uh, outside the clinic. But in general, no, not most people are not sending people who have normal blood pressures in clinic to look for this masked kind of uh, physiology. Yeah, so this HRE or hypertensive response to exercise may in fact predict that the person has high blood pressure outside of the setting where it was previously measured. Um, and basically you just have, again, this rapidly increasing blood pressure uh, with a relatively low amount of demand suggests there's some sort of impairment in the muscular, the vessels supplying the muscles ability to dilate or get bigger. Um, so there might be greater baseline vasoconstriction or narrowing of the blood vessels due to sympathetic nervous system activity. You could have decreased amounts of nitric oxide in the system or sensitivity to them, um, or just, you know, endothelial dysfunction, which is type, you know, peripheral artery disease. Uh, so all of these things may occur, but it's not like people are generally measuring their blood pressure while they're exercising. This is more, more so done in the research setting. Um, this is just one of those things that there can be abnormal blood pressure responses to exercise and like, you know, what they might mean. Uh, also people, and I've gotten this in my DMs a number of times, people measure their blood pressure after they work out and they're like, I'm 90 over 60. That's too low. Right. It's like, mm, eh, well, unless you're having like a syncope, you're about to pass out. You have evidence of end organ damage. Cause you're not getting a bunch of blood to the organs. Uh, yeah, yeah these maybe, numbers, but... these numbers can't be interpreted in isolation. That's kind of exactly the, the bottom line here. Yeah. But it is normal that blood pressure does go down below baseline after exercise. And we call this post-exercise hypotension. And if, uh, if you were in a research setting, or maybe you were really had high clinical suspicion that somebody had like on, you know, had masked hypertension, you couldn't quite get it uh, measured in the clinic. And, uh, after exercise, their blood pressure was still very elevated or continued to climb. Um, that is an abnormal response to exercise as well. Effectively, you have a impaired uh, capacity to vasodilate, return to rest, et cetera. And that would all indicate, you know, maybe something is amiss, but we still don't know exactly what HRE means this hypertensive response to exercise. There's not a ton of data on this. And again, this is always just being measured in the research setting. So there are no recommendations currently to do this. Um, there's been some, some interesting trials where they're like, Hey, maybe have somebody do a hand grip test while they're in the clinic to see if they have like an exaggerated response. But again, you'd have to have a very high clinical suspicion to like do that. You'd be like, well, look, uh, look, Mrs. Baraki, uh, you've been normal your entire life, but I am worried. And maybe you would be, be due to evidence of like chronic kidney disease or something You're like, and I don't really have a good reason for this. Uh, let's check your, <laughs> your response to, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of a, a situation. 
Um, so anyway, that is an acute response to exercise, this hypertensive response to exercise that's abnormal. Again, on the flip side, you could have too low a blood pressure response and both indicate impairments in your sort of cardiovascular sort of fitness and, and ability to adapt to changes. So that's in the short term. But in the long term, there's been this question and discussion subsequently about the potential for hard exercise, uh, specifically heavy resistance training and or high volumes of aerobic training um, to drive cardiovascular adaptations that increase the risk of heart disease by changing the structure and function of the cardiovascular system. We're going to dedicate a whole separate podcast to that topic. So like exercise and its changes on the heart and blood vessels, like what do, but here's the gist, because I think people want to know and, and just they need a little take home. A number of unique adaptations occur over time in response to exercise in virtually every organ system. This includes the cardiovascular system and all of its components. Many of these adaptations can be seen or measured via a surrogate measure. Uh, many of these uh, measurements add clinical value by comparing the value to a healthy yet untrained reference. So examples in the setting include heart muscle uh, size, stiffness, heart chamber size, blood flow characteristics, et cetera. Uh, and if you look at you know people who lift heavy weights or people who engage in endurance or marathon type training, some of these surrogate measures look uh, not great uh, compared to physically inactive or insufficiently active individuals. So for example, there's a coronary uh, artery calcium score or a CAC score um, that basically measures how much calcium is deposited in your coronary arteries. Uh, those are the blood vessels that supply the heart. We would love if people had a measurement of zero, no coronary artery calcium. Um, and you would expect, oh, if exercise is health promoting, that's got a lower CAC scores. Uh, but in fact, people who are very, very active, exercising more than 3,000 uh, met minutes, that's a ton. That's like 6X, the upper uh, limit uh, or upper uh, recommendation for the minimum exercise guidelines, those people have elevated CAC scores. People who take statins have elevated CAC scores, yet it, both these things decrease their risk of having heart disease or major cardiac events. So the clinical outcomes that are available almost universally show benefit to exercise with respect to cardiovascular disease and related proxies like blood pressure, resting heart rate, VO2 max, performance on stress tests, et cetera. So while like the intermediate mechanisms and the measurements thereof might look a little, uh, you know, poor <laughs> for, for, for individuals that exercise, particularly he lifting heavy weights, doing a bunch of uh, aerobic training volume, the actual clinical outcomes still look way better than being insufficiently active or even only moderately active. And I think that's an important thing to take away. Like I am less concerned with somebody's, you know, heart muscle stiffness, right, compared to, well, and over the next 20, 30 years, what is their, you know, do they have a major adverse cardiac event? And if they don't, which the data appears to be firmly in favor that they don't, why are we using this sort of metric to predict how they do? And, and so we're going to do a whole podcast on this. Uh, Austin, I, I, I saw you getting ready to drop some knowledge. So uh, curious to hear what you think about that. Yeah, I think this reminds me a lot of the conversation we had earlier about how seeing the same, you know, let's say it's a high blood pressure measurement in two different contexts. One, it's in an individual who's sitting at rest, measuring their blood pressure, and then maybe they have some excess body fat or some other thing. We interpret that blood pressure one way. And then another person who maybe has the same level of high blood pressure in a different context, be it during exercise, um, is interpreted very differently. And that's because the, the mechanism or the, the way that that blood pressure became high um, 
is different and that results in different outcomes. And so we're seeing something similar here where in you know, general, like say heart disease patients, we know that say having a, a thicker, you know, heart muscle uh, is generally a, a, a somewhat concerning finding or a stiffer heart muscle is a somewhat more concerning finding. And then we might see that in somebody who lifts weights. And of course, like your precautionary, maybe default assumption is, oh, is this harmful? And then you'd want to see, does this play out in worse outcomes? Are lifters around the world all, you know, getting diagnosed with, you know, diastolic heart failure at higher rates or something like that because their heart muscles are thicker and stiffer or something like that? And that's not really showing up. Um, Are they dying at much higher rates from heart disease related events? Doesn't seem to be really showing up a ton. And so then it makes me wonder whether a similar thing is going on here such that is the mechanism or like the way that that heart muscle became thick, does that explain some of the difference in outcomes? In other words, in the in the standard heart disease patient with chronic high resting blood pressure, their muscle gets thicker and that's pathological uh, or ultimately leads them to develop heart failure and complications compared to a lifter, um, for example, or a, or a chronic exerciser. The mechanism that their muscle got thicker is, is different and that different way of getting to that endpoint is what explains maybe the difference in outcomes that we see similar to what we saw with high blood pressure. Yeah, it's like the difference between a Brazilian butt lift, a BBL, and, you know, doing your squats. The different ways of getting thick and different outcomes. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think, that's a very good <laughs> – I, I think that's true. I think that's true. All right, so that is a that is a wrap on part one of our two-part series on high blood pressure. We will be back next week with the second part. We talk about uh, blood pressure during exercise, uh, the epidemiology of blood pressure, what to do about elevated blood pressure, take-home messages, etc. So make sure to tune into that one. But this has been episode 177 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. Big shout out and thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum on the podcast. Before you go anywhere, please uh, make sure to fill out our survey. It's linked in the description below. Also, if you need an app to log your training, to access templates, to log your body composition changes, you can download our app for free. It's on the Apple App Store. You search Barbell Medicine or check out the link also in the description below. And before you really log off your phone and try to stop being overwhelmed by social media, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you.